Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, amen. Well, I tell you, this week, um, man, my heart has been all over the place in preparation for today. Today is a little bit different. Um, I normally um, always take a passage of Scripture and just work right through it. But today, as you see, we'll be doing something a little different, uh, for I feel it is incredibly necessary. Let me say at the very beginning of this message that this message and others will contain some very sensitive subjects. I have done and will do my best to present these messages with our children in mind. However, I want to remind everyone here that the original listeners to the book that we will get into today, the original listeners included children in the audience. These letters were read out loud to families. And so therefore, um, I want to remind you that if we do mention things today, I've tried and I will try to consciously think about what I say and how I say it but it will provide probably opportunities for you to disciple your children. And I want you to know that you're not on your own to do that. We are more than welcome, I mean, more than happy uh, to help you. You are welcome to ask us for any help. Sarah, just stand up just for a second. I want you just to wave your hand. I know this is embarrassing, but, but Sarah is our children's minister. Seth, would you stand up and wave your hand? Seth is our children's minister. Justin, just stand right back up. I want you to stand up. Yeah, he's our youth. I said that. And Justin, I'm sorry, youth. And then Justin's our discipleship pastor. I want you to know that these three individuals will be more than happy to help you if anything we talk about today brings up a subject that your children may want more information. Can y'all give those guys just a hand? Thank you. So um, this morning we begin preaching verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. It, and I've laid this out, and, and there's good news and there's bad news. <laughs> the good news is, is we'll address everything known to the face of man. The bad news is it's going to take us all the way through next February to do it. <laughs> um, uh, I've laid out probably about 55, 56 messages, and I'm more than stoked, man, to get, to get in. But I want you to know that as Blomberg in his commentary mentions, I want you to imagine a church plagued by division. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other. And each has a loyal band of followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of discipling or disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave such a way. Christians in this church are suing each other in secular courts. Some like to visit women of the night. There's a backlash against this rampant immorality. Another faction in the church is promoting celibacy. I mean, complete sexual abstinence for all believers, whether you're married or uh, unmarried, because that would be the Christian ideal. Still others in this church debate, and they rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their past about men's and women's roles in the church is just adding to the confusion. And then if this weren't enough in this church, there's prophecies and there's speaking in tongues that, that just results in mass chaos. 
Furthermore, a significant number of these immature Christians don't even believe in a future bodily resurrection. This is the church at Corinth. But as I kind of read through that, I thought, man, that's a description of the church in America. And then I'll let you make your own application about what you feel it may be at our church. 1 Corinthians is a book that deals with the problems of the first century, and amazingly, we still have the same problems today. This book is incredibly contemporary and so very relevant to the times in which we live because you need to remember that Satan's devices and schemes, as well as human nature, never change. (laughs) In 1 Corinthians, we're going to deal with subjects such as the exaltation of human wisdom, in other words, philosophy, the exaltation of man, humanism, the visions in the local church, sexual immorality, insubordination to authority, marriage, divorce, singleness, the relationship of male to female, feminism, if you will, questionable practices related to alcohol, the place of women in the church, homosexuality, the true meaning of love. (laughs) The book of 1 Corinthians has answers to the basic moral problems which you and I are facing even in our workplace. I want you to know that I know that these kind of things can be tedious In other words, an introduction to the book of the Bible can be tedious, and I know what you may be thinking, at least some of you. Man, do we really have to give an introduction? Well, yeah. I think it's important, especially for 1 Corinthians, because trying to cover a book like this without an introduction is like going into the middle of a movie and trying to figure out the plot. It's very hard to do. So this morning, we're going to dig into what I would just call a healthy introduction. I want to begin with authorship. No one in history, and I mean that seriously, no one in history has ever questioned that Paul was the writer of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote the book while he was in Ephesus at the very height of his ministry in that city. So next, let's discuss the date or the writing of the book. And scholars disagree, but as I've done my own study, I found that basically between AD 53 and 57, are the parameters. They, they can't really agree on when, but as I've looked at it, I, I agree with most scholars that maybe it was written in AD 55. Now let's look a little bit into Corinth from a historical perspective. In other words, looking at it from history, Corinth was declared a, a free city by Rome in 196 BC. In 146 BC, it rebelled and was totally destroyed by the Romans. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar, you may have heard that name, rebuilt the city of Corinth with great elegance, restoring it to its former prominence, making it now a Roman colony. But looking at it not from a historical perspective, but from a commercial perspective, in the time of the Apostle Paul, Corinth was the most important city in Greece. It was a wealthy metropolis of 700,000 people and was located on a very narrow isthmus dividing the Adriatic and Aegean Seas. Let's look at this first picture to kind of help you just a little bit. I know you can't really see it a whole lot, but if you look up here in this top left hand, you'll see that there's two words. One starts with an L and the other one starts with a C. That's Corinth. And Corinth is located right there between these two seas, if you can see that. Folks could access uh, different places just by going through this. And What you need to understand is these two seaports 
that one that starts with an L and that one that starts with a C, Sincrea and Lekanah, those are major ports which people would bring commercial trade constantly. But then I want you to see this isthmus a little more in detail. If you can look there, the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf right there, but there's an isthmus that joins two things, if you can see that. Folks could access by, by this isthmus, I'm going to show you another picture. Uh, uh, go ahead and go to that one. They could access Italy on one side and they could get to Asia on the other side simply by going through that isthmus. This was a major commercial trade route, which means this was the city and there was no other city in the whole Mediterranean which had more commerce and trade than Corinth. Because of that, it attracted all kinds of people from all over the world. And with that, they brought their sin. Looking at Corinth politically, Corinth was the capital of Achaia. It was the seat of the proconsul. It was a vital military center, commanding trade of these roots of Greece. Culturally, Corinth prided itself on culture. It has astounded in studios and workshops, halls of rhetoric, schools of business and philosophy. There was this large amphitheater in Corinth that seated 18,000 people and a and a concert hall seating 3,000 people. The famous Isthmian Games were celebrated nearby, and the city attracted some of the finest athletes from all over the Roman world. Half of the population were slaves, and the other population were free. The people of Corinth prided themselves in their intellectualism, although they had denigrated into a crude, shallow type of people. People of all races, backgrounds, social strata came to the city, and Greeks delighted in nothing more than a healthy, even argumentative, philosophical, political, or religious argument. They were fiercely independent people and very proud of their knowledge. It was truly a cosmopolitan city. Jews and Orientals came to trade. Romans were there on official business and commerce brought sailors and salesmen and bankers and people from all over the Mediterranean world. But spiritually looking at Corinth, we can see that pride in our intellect and pride in wealth comes with a great poverty of both. Corinth, you need to know this because as we get into the book, it's going to help you Corinth was probably one of the most wicked cities of its time. Two particular vices plagued this city. And I think it describes our country. <laughs> Greed for material things and the lusts of passion. Corinth was luxurious, but super immoral. It was a boom town and its rapid growth and wealth produced a false, licentious, very sinful culture. It was a beautiful city, but it was also a city of prostitution and passion. It was a, its religion was the worship of the goddess of sex. And the people worshiped Aphrodite, the goddess of love. You see, Corinth was built at the base of a huge 1850 rock called the Acrocorinth. And right at the very top of the Acrocorinth was the temple of Aphrodite. If you want to show that, here's some remains of that temple. And what would happen is, is way up here on top of this, this, this temple, every evening thousands of priests and priestesses, male and female prostitutes, would come down from the temple 
into the city to ply their trade. There were others who were high-class people of this art, and they would saturate themselves in the arts and music in ways of the, throughout the world to relate to people so that they could do their trade. This Aphrodite cult was dedicated simply to the glorification of sex. Sexual immorality, therefore, was a part of the religion, listen, the religion of Corinth. And every respectable person in the city had that religion. If they were to be religious at all, it was always with these temple prostitutes. But there was another religious cult directed towards just males. Not just the woman, but the, now there was one, it was called the Temple of Apollo. Let's look at that picture. Apollo was the god of music, song, and poetry. But Apollo was really the ideal male beauty. <laughs> Nude pictures of him and statues of him always were around the city. But here's what you need to know, and this is the disgusting part, and I'll try to make this very sensitively said. But the statues of him around the city were with, with, with this, this Apollo, this god, having inappropriate relationships with younger members of the same sex. It was to make this seem like this was what would really reach God. So Corinth was therefore the center of homosexual activity. Some could say, as a pastor here at our church once said in my office, Corinth was the New Testament version of Sodom and Gomorrah became common to portray Corinthians on the theater stage as helpless drunkards. A Corinthian banquet was what was described when a bunch of people would get together and do the things that adult married couples do. A Corinthian drinker was an alcoholic. A Corinthian life meant that you lived a life of sexual vice. A Corinthian girl meant that you were a loose and immoral woman. There was a Corinthian sickness, which meant that you were just completely taken over by your own sin. Corinth could be compared to today's cities like San Francisco, Las Vegas, Hollywood, or even New York. Corinth was a city as bad or worse than any city in our world, and it was the cesspool of the Roman Empire. But aren't you thankful for the blood applied? The gospel of Jesus Christ penetrated that sinful city, and many people turned to God from their wickedness to serve the living Christ. You see, Paul comes to Corinth, on his second missionary journey, if you'll pull that up. You can't really see that, and it's a bad picture, and I'm very sorry for that. It didn't kind of translate over the way I wanted it. But there's different colors there, which indicate Paul's missionary journeys. And, and on Paul's second missionary journey, what's happened to be the lightest one, you can see over here underneath the K in Greece, there's that little isthmus. Paul came there on his second missionary journey. He came there to preach the gospel of Christ to that wicked city. But a few weeks earlier, he had been horribly persecuted right above it in Macedonia. He just left Athens where he and his message were rejected by these intellectual Athen Athenians. He arrived in Corinth, a brash and just arrogant city without companions. He had no money. He had no friends. And in, 
just as I read the study of Paul, I know that his heart is burdened by all the statues to the immorality that he sees. Paul is recovering from being physically battered. He was emotionally drained and spiritually down, yet God sent him to this least likely of places to lift his spirit. God's ways are not our ways, and he had special plans for Paul. We are told that Paul came into the city with real fear and great weakness. For in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he said, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Being true to his divine calling, he preached the basic message of Jesus, his death, his resurrection to save sinful people. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gradually, some people began to respond to Jesus. And although there was a fairly large Jewish population, Paul had very little fruit among the Jews. And so he leaves preaching to the Jews and preached almost entirely to the Gentiles. So now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 18. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, the verses will be on the screen. Acts 18, 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now I will go to the Gentiles. A few of the highest society people were saved in Corinth, but most came from the lower classes. You might read in your Bible as you're reading through Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians, you'll hear some names of some people who came to faith because of Paul's ministry. Justice, a wealthy proselyte to Judaism, we see Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, Erastus, the treasurer of the city at Corinth, Gaius, a wealthy man with a large home, Chloe, a wealthy woman, and we goes on and on. But there were some from the higher echelons of society with political influence, but the vast majority of the people that received Christ were from those who were considered as slaves. But Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27, and he says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. That's what God was doing. Furthermore, some of these Corinthians, as is, is you can imagine, I described the culture, right? As I described their, their patterns, their religion, what they did, the, the, the grossness of what they were doing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, watch, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This gospel came to this immoral city where people were outwardly appearing to be happy with all that stuff. Philosophically alert, materially prosperous, and sexually free, they were the most miserable of all and in desperate need of God's forgiveness. And that, my beloved, was the makeup of the Corinthian church. 
These people had come out of sordid backgrounds. Many of them were still struggling with the aftermath of their lives being involved in such gross activity. It carried a lot of baggage with them into the new church. The city of Corinth was God's target for the gospel. And when Paul started to have some success, the devil became active and things began to heat up. The thought of more spiritual conflict and physical persecution caused Paul to become anguished. And under satanic attack, ministry pressures, and spiritual depression, Paul then wants to flee Corinth. But Christ appears to Paul and tells him, hey, you got to go back into that city. Because God says, I've got many people here, Paul. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 18, it says this, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking and don't be silent. Watch this. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Wow. And so Paul stays a year and a half at Corinth. He preaches and teaches, and then he moves to another city to declare Christ. It must have been heartbreaking and a little scary for Paul to leave this, this church that he had formed and all the evil that was still in that city, but Paul had to be obedient to the Lord. And he had great confidence that a sovereign Lord would take care of that little church and it could survive without him. So then you may be saying, well, then that's a lot of good stuff. Can you just kind of cut to the chase and tell me how did we come to the letter of Corinthians? Sure, I'll do it. Paul continued his contact after he left with the infant Corinthian church while he was in Ephesus. This might get a little confusion, but stick with me. He writes a letter to the Corinthians, and part of that content was telling the Corinthians not to associate with immoral people. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That was pretty much everybody. This was misunderstood by them. They thought that they should stop witnessing to the sinful world around them and just become these people who just kind of hid. Well, if they had to stop associating with sinful people, they would have to stop associating with anybody. But see, that letter that Paul wrote to deal with that has been lost. It's sometime called the previous letter. Technically, that letter is really 1 Corinthians. We don't have that. And, and one of the reasons why... And, and I don't want to go off onto some kind of crazy tangent, but that letter was just not inspired and had no use for the universal church and God's plan. Craig Bloomberg in his commentary says, why was this letter not preserved? Presumably it did not have sufficient instruction or enough topics of abiding significance to be sufficiently valuable to the broader Christian community. We must remember that the biblical writers were inspired only when they wrote what now forms Scripture and not in everything they wrote or everything they spoke. So Paul, then while he's there, he gets some, some wind. Or there's some real problems developing in the church. And so he sits down to write them 1 Corinthians in order to handle the problems. But the letter did not solve the problems of the church. In fact, it only intensified them. As a result, Paul makes a brief visit to Corinth from Ephesus. He says in 2 Corinthians, he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Because when Paul showed up, he brought the leather, folks. <laughs> this is a very painful visit because he had to come wielding his authority as an apostle and rebuking the church, severely rebuking them for their behavior. Apparently, the problem was that they refused to accept his authority as an apostle. 
So Paul goes back to Ephesus from Corinth, and when he arrived, he hears that his visit has not been effective. They begin to question his authority even more and even his judgment. So Paul sat down to write really a third letter. And he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And friends, this was a scorcher of a letter, which apparently was needed to shake these carnal Corinthians to reality. Apparently, Titus carried a letter back to Paul that the Corinthians now had written him. Paul, a true shepherd, was concerned about the effect the letter had on the Corinthians, and he left Ephesus and met Titus halfway. Titus had good news. The Corinthians were ready to receive Paul's apostleship and leadership. The things had been set straight. Then when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, which is really the third or fourth epistle to the Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is now a letter of thanksgiving and great relief that they finally accepted his leadership. So let's quickly look at some reasons Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. First, we, we study from looking at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in the book of Acts, we can see that while Paul was in Ephesus, Paul received a report from the household of Chloe that there was great division, strife, and dissension among the Christian brothers. 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are divisions among you. Second, a delegation of three distinguished members of the church crossed the sea to bring Paul a letter from the church at Corinth asking him to explain practical problems that had arisen in the assembly. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Those are a couple of reasons, but what did he have in mind was the purpose. Paul writes to deal with the disorders reported in the household of Chloe. So Paul in chapters 1 through 6 sets right the the contentions that had arisen in the assembly. In chapters 1 and 2, he deals with divisions brought about because of a conflict between human wisdom and God's wisdom. In chapters 3 and 4, he deals with the problem of following men rather than following Christ in the local church. In chapter 5, he deals with the problem of refusing to deal with sexual sin in the assembly because sin was being tolerated. In chapter 6, he deals with the problem of Christians who are at odds with one another, so much so that they were taking each other to court to solve their own problems. Secondly, Paul writes to deal with the difficulties of running a local church. (laughs) He says, now for the matters which you wrote about. That formula appears six times in the book. So in chapter 7, Paul deals with marriage. He deals with divorce. He deals with singleness. In chapter 8, he deals with Christian liberty. In chapter 9, he vindicates his authority, and he talks about why pastors should get paid. Interesting. Not my choice. In chapter 10, he deals with religious apostasy. In chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's table and the place of women in the church. In chapter 12 and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, the collection of the needy saints in Jerusalem. And then sandwiched right between spiritual gifts and chapter 13, there's the greatest chapter on the subject of love in all the Bible. Third, Paul writes to deal with a doctrine denied or questioned by some in the Corinthian church. Some were denying that there would be a great resurrection of all true believers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, But 
If it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? That's what they were saying. Finally, I want us to see in our closing moments the value this study can have for us. One of those is that this book best reflects American culture and how that culture has impacted our church. Whether you realize it or not, we all brought our culture in with us today. And that culture has deeply affected why we do and even what we do. As Gordon Fee in his commentary states, he says, the cosmopolitan character of the city and church, the strident individualism that emerges in so many of their behavioral aberrations, the arrogance that attends their understanding of spirituality, the accommodation of the gospel to the surrounding culture, these and many other features of the Corinthian church are but mirrors held up before us today. Secondly, I want us to see that this book presents to us the life of the primitive New Testament church better than any other book in the Bible. No other book sheds more light on the organization and functioning of the local church. Here's what my challenge is to you. As we go through this book, we should ask ourselves if our church is trying to operate and function as a New Testament church. I know there's lots of room for disagreement as to what the New Testament church is. And I know that we can never exactly reproduce what was happening there. But some of the basic things are, do we have sound doctrine? Are we ruled by pastors and elders? Do we equip the saints for ministry? Do we have an effective evangelistic outreach to the lost world? Do we have a commitment to love? Do we care for and minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we have a proper use of church discipline to maintain the purity of the church? These are some of the things that we would talk about. Thirdly, I believe that this book is a paradigm for ministry. It should tell us how we're going to reach the Grange. Because the Grange has a pretty bad reputation when it comes to some of this stuff. If Christ can change the lives of the most populated, most wealthy, most commercially minded, and most sex-obsessed city in the ancient world, he can surely turn LaGrange upside down. Fourth, this book is an exhortation to godly living. <laughs> Corinthian church was not primarily guilty of heresy. It was primarily guilty in its approach to the Christian life and how we should act as believers. See, after Paul left them, these unbelievers and these believers too, most of them which didn't have understanding of spirituality, they slipped back into some of their old ways. Greek philosophy and its eloquence was a constant threat to them. The pollution of morals in Corinth was a constant temptation. Most of these believers failed to go into the things of Christ. They failed to just continue to grow. And they were regressing in their experience. They were going back to some of their former attitudes and actions they had before they were converted to Christ. And as Pastor Justin said a couple of weeks ago, he said it differently, but the same idea. The Corinthian church had to be in the world, but the problem was the world was in the Corinthian church. And that should never be, friends. 1 Corinthians makes this very relevant for us because the sins of our culture Beloved, had become the sins of the local church. Sins of pragmatism, whatever works, just do it. Sins of materialism, 
let's just make it bigger and better. Rationalism, humanism, situational ethics, if it feels good, do it. Sexual perversion, who are you to tell me what gender I am? Abortion, racial prejudice. You don't think that's still a problem? Exaltation of men? Tolerance of sin? Rebellion to authority? Divorce? Hundreds of other things have just permeated the church. So the theme of 1 Corinthians is sanctification or godly living. This book teaches us that Christian living is the constant acknowledgement of Christ's lordship over our lives. You see, Romans, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians make it plain that no one is ever made right with God by just keeping the law. But 1 Corinthians makes it equally plain that once you are saved, not by the law, but by grace, you are expected to keep the commands of God. Craig Blomberg writes in his commentary again, he says, polls repeatedly claim that upwards of 80% of Americans, listen to this, 80% of Americans claim to be Christian and that between 30 to 40% claim to have a born-again experience. Now that's interesting. Just alone, 80% of the population claim to be Christian, but only 30 to 40% of those claim to have a born-again experience, which tells me that we're already down to 30 to 40%. Yet, even of the 30 to 40%, there's little evidence of many of the fruit of a genuine conversion of the practice of true spirituality. Instead, we see much of the behavior that closely parallels immorality, and I demand my rights is the idea that we're into today. Fifth, on a positive note, this book attests to the power of the gospel to change lives. Christ can take a debased sinner and make him into a saint. (laughs) Christ can reach any man or woman. Do y'all believe that today? No matter what your education is, no matter what your race is, no matter your social condition, even your moral condition, did you know that Jesus can make you a new creation? Christ changes lives through the power of of the gospel. Once H.A. Ironside, a great preacher of old, was preaching in a place, and he noticed a man in the audience was writing on a little card. The man turned out to be Arthur Lewis, who was an agnostic lecturer. So Lewis gave Ironside the card, which was a challenge to have a public debate over Christianity versus agnosticism. And agnosticism means this, that you just can't know. The word gnosis means knowledge, and the prefix a before that negates it, so it means that there is no knowledge we can't know. So this guy was saying, we can't really know these things, and Ironside was saying, yes, we can. So he challenged him to a debate. Well, Ironside read the card publicly and said, hey, Mr. Lewis, I will take your challenge under two conditions. First, he said, Mr. Lewis... You must promise to bring to the debate and bring to the platform one man, one man who was once an outcast, a man who was a slave to sinful habits, who heard you or some other infidel lecturer on agnosticism 
and was helped by it to cast away his sins, becoming a new man, and who today is a respected member of society because of his unbelief. He said, secondly, my condition is that you also to bring one woman to the platform who was lost to all purity and goodness, but who can now testify that agnosticism came to her while she was in her deep sin and implanted within her heart a hatred of impurity and a love of holiness, causing her to be chaste and upright through her disbelief in the Bible. And if you can present to me those two things and meet those two conditions, I promise that I will show up with 100 women and 100 such men who were once lost souls who've responded to the gospel and have found a new life and joy in Jesus by believing the Bible. Will you accept my terms? The man stood up, put his head down, and silently walked out and refused to debate. You know why, friends? Because nothing, nothing can change our lives but the gospel of Jesus. Nothing can grow a church but the gospel of Jesus. And I am more than excited to get into this book to help our church grow in Christ and to see many more people who are living in those kind of lifestyles just like Steve Brown was. Aren't you thankful for the blood applied? Aren't you thankful that over your testimony, the Bible says, and such were some of you? I may not be who I need to be, but I praise God I ain't who I used to be. Somebody says, Pastor, man, how do you not do all that? How do you not get involved in all that? And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I don't know if this is correct English, but y'all forgive me. I'm just a country boy. I just need to know. But, man, Steve Brown got his wanter fixed. I used to want to do that stuff, and now I don't want to. I got my wanter fixed. And if you're here today and you need your wanter fixed, Jesus can fix that for you. He can take your old simple lifestyle, no matter where you've been, what you've done. And Jesus today would speak a word in your heart. And he would say, listen, if you would just trust me to forgive you. If you just trust the fact that I know that's where you're at and I'm coming to you even now, knowing that's where you're at, it's me because I love you. I don't, I don't want to cast you out. I'm coming to you to speak my grace to you that no matter where you're at, no matter what sinful lifestyle you're in, no matter what you're caught up in, I love you and I want to forgive you. Will you turn from that and turn to me and trust that I died to pay for it, that I was buried to cover it, and that I was raised again to have victory over it, and now I offer that to you. If you would believe in that, my beloved, you too can get your wanter fixed. I don't have the power to get my want to fixed. Jesus is in the wanter fixing business, amen. I wonder if you'd stand with me and as the band comes. So then what is this gospel that Paul preaches? If you've already tuned me out, and again, I know, man, if you're a guest here, our people will tell you this is not typically me. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry, man, if this was too much and, and all that, but I just felt it so necessary. 
You have to understand what we're getting ready to get into. Because folks, this ain't light lifting. We ain't going to just jumping into touchy feel good stuff. I mean, this is just like, hmm. So what is this gospel? If you haven't listened to me, would you just tune in now? Because I need you to hear this. The word gospel means good news. It means Christ, the God-man, died for sinful men and women. And that he rose from the dead to prove that he was God and to give them eternal life. And because of his death and resurrection, he offers salvation, freedom, forgiveness of sin to any man or woman, boy or girl, on the basis that a person will receive by faith that Christ died for him or her and then bow before him as their Lord, giving Christ the right to rule their life. Christ can change your life. Christ changed my life. And Christ can give you hope for all eternity. Let me tell you something. If you've made a mess of your life, you are in the right place. So we're going to start diving in next week. But before we do, my prayer is that if you've never received the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never decided to become a follower of Jesus, to become and live like Jesus, to place your faith where God placed his son, and that's on a cross and in a tomb and in a resurrection, that this morning you would come that you would be saved, you would be born again, that you would receive forgiveness, that you would be cleansed from your sin, that you would have the Holy Spirit come into your life and make all things old pass away and, beloved, make everything become new. If that is you today, or you need to pray about anything else, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. There'll be some people here at the front to meet with us to pray. Let's pray right now. God, I just trust in your gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation. And it is the power of God and the sanctification. So no matter where we find ourselves today, if we find ourselves away from you because we've never come, or away from you because we're just fighting, growing in holiness, I pray today that your grace would wrap its arms around us and bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as we sing.